This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is the Sunday Times best-selling and award-winning author Matt Haig. We spoke with him via Zoom in October of 2020 about his newest book, The Midnight Library, by publisher Viking Books. English writer Matt Haig has penned two dozen works, both children's and adult, fiction and nonfiction, in his career as a novelist. He's worked as a journalist as well, but what he likes to infuse his work with is from a career path he didn't take. I studied English and history at university. I wish, in a way, I'd done philosophy. I use novels as a way to sort of crowbar in as much philosophy and my own thoughts, but also an excuse to put loads of quotes from favorite philosophers in there. The story is literally about someone working out whether to live or die and someone to work out their own meaning of life. It lent itself for philosophical themes. And we'll certainly hear about different philosophies in his book, The Midnight Library, along with a look into his love of science and libraries and screen adaptations of his pieces. Award-winning author Matt Haig is our guest today on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Carrie Robb. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a thrill to talk to you. I've been so excited for this interview. Um, your new book, The Midnight Library, it's just now out in the U.S., um, but it's been at the top of the U.K. bestseller list for months now. Do you want to start us off just by telling us a bit about the story? Okay, well, The Midnight Library of the title is a library that exists between life and death. And a uh, young woman or youngish woman, 35-year-old woman called Nora, finds herself there after doing something uh, very rash and stupid and she finds herself between life and death and um, she's in this infinite library it's not a normal library but shelves in this library go on forever and the library itself goes on to sort of all eternity and all the books on the shelves are different shades of green and so it's a very strange mysterious library which is explained to her by the librarian within the library mrs elm who may or may not be the same Mrs. Elm um, she knew as a child, as a school librarian. And um, essentially, each of the uh, books on the shelves is a different version of her life if she'd have lived it a different way. So she gets to um, undo her regrets, and she's been drowning in regrets. She's feeling like she's let so many people down. She could have fulfilled all kinds of dreams. Um, she could have not ended certain relationships and all of this stuff. Like, like a lot of us, she's got lots of what-ifs floating around. And she now, in this kind of state of limbo, gets a chance to actually access and enter um, any version of her life she wants, essentially, to see if the grass really is greener, to see, you know, if she really wants to live or if she doesn't, and to, to work out what life's all about for her, Nora Seed. 
It's such a fantastic idea. I think, you know, everybody kind of has that fantasy about being able to glimpse, you know, what life would be like if you chose a different career, or you loved that other person. So it, it really touched on sort of a long desire of mine, I guess. Yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think it's a, a, a common desire for people. But I also think now in the 21st century, it's almost a universal thing because whether it's the internet or whatever we we kind of always compare ourselves to other other people other versions of ourselves we have social media we have things like instagram and if you're on instagram you you end up um you know you it can be a very happy place but even if it is a happy place you're you're looking at lots of people's lives and even before you have breakfast some mornings you, a person can actually see 200 different lives that they're not living and um, maybe not so much in 2020, but in 2019, you could see people leaning against palm trees and all around the world. And, and you think, oh, why, why am I not doing that? Even in this year, there's been a little bit of that. There was a point at the start of kind of lockdown and sort of like March, April time, where there was almost a competitive thing about how people were spending their time at home, whether they were baking bread or learning a language or learning the piano. And, and, and we've got a million ways to make ourselves feel inadequate and full of regrets. And so I wanted to just um, put something out there into the ether that's a slight uh, counterweight to that. So it's sort of like, you know, preach all that good stuff about self-acceptance, but actually do it in a way that might be slightly convincing. So when I was writing it, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to actually, um, you know, give myself first and foremost, a uh, perspective shift about um, regrets. Right. And you have been, I mean, with your previous books, you've always been really open about mental health. And I think that's meant so much to so many of your readers and followers. You're also very open about it on social media. Um, so that's definitely what I took away from this book. I mean, it starts off in a really dark place, but um, you really get the sense that it's just a real celebration of life's possibilities in the end. So I definitely appreciated that. Um, there was a quote, I'm trying to remember what it was, that I saw in a review that said that it was an uplifting antidote to like, the self-improvement cult, which I thought yeah. was true. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I suppose, I mean, often my work, certainly my non-fiction work, gets very much lumped into self-help, which is a term I'm not 100%, I'm not ever certain of it as a term, but I'm not too snobby about it. And if people want to see it, it's that, that's fine. But I think within self-help, there's almost like two, two types of sort of self-help thinking. There's the um, self-improvement idea, which can, can start to feel a bit sort of fascistic sometimes and a little bit... Um, intimidating and actually make you feel worse about yourself because it, 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 in order to, to motivate you to improve yourself, it just sort of points out how you're in a terrible place right now. Uh, and, you know, my, my thing is much more about um, self-acceptance. I, I absolutely believe in um, improving ourselves and being better people, obviously. But I think often the way it's framed um, is wrong. I mean, for instance, uh, in, in my country and in your country, for the last two decades, we, we've had quite a sort of reality TV culture where, you know, and the format of the average sort of reality TV show, certainly like the talent shows, is, the, is basically about um, someone coming from a, an ordinary background, has a talent, and then Simon Cowell or whoever waves a magic wand and 
they enter this, they're saved from ordinary existence via fame and fortune and a record deal with Sony or whoever. And I just think, you know, and that slips into the internet too, where we're always, you know, a six week gym plan away or a, a special talent away or an Instagram viral post away from salvation. And we can never just accept our own imperfect existence. And it's like, I don't know, I don't want to sound too sentimental, but I always think of like a newborn baby. No one looks at you or any of a newborn baby and thinks of a lack. They don't think of all those things that new human being doesn't have. They don't think, oh, that person isn't earning this amount of money, isn't, hasn't got this amount of social media followers. In fact, it just seems ridiculous, this idea that that baby could be worth less um, because, because of not having those certain things. And yet, as we grow older and older and older by our education, by our sort of consumer culture, everything else, we, we find a million ways to feel inadequate about everything. And obviously, um, men feel it in a different way to how women feel it, and we all feel it in different ways, and privilege plays a part in that. But I think everyone, as we grow up, um, yeah, beats ourselves up about things, and often quite trivial things, and we don't we see the bigger picture of, of how miraculous it is to be alive, how, how freakishly random the event of our own birth was, and how we're witnessing the universe from the only planet we know of which has life, and all those sorts of poetic, wonderful things. And we, 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 and we spend so much time uh, catastrophizing about our own lives, feeling full of regret for the past or fear for the, for the future. And so, yeah, those themes are definitely things that have played a part in my own mental health. I can remember for me when I had a full-blown breakdown and had depression and was diagnosed with panic disorder and stuff. Um, regret was a, a massive thing. I used to feel it almost like a physical uh, force that would weigh me down. And... Um, yeah, it took me many years to sort of like reach a state of acceptance that I didn't have to have such high standards for myself. And in fact, the thing that kept me locked in depression for ages was partly because I hated the idea of being depressed. Obviously, there's reason for that because depression is a horrible thing to go through. But I, I hated the sort of like being branded as someone with depression. And, and so to, my recovery was very much part of that uh, uh, self-acceptance so in a way I, I think i wasn't going to bring it around this neatly but i've just worked out self-acceptance is self-improvement because that that acceptance led to the recovery it led to me no longer eventually having depression and panic disorder and anxiety to the extent i'd had it so yeah in a way there's not really a war between self-acceptance and self-improvement it's just that i think sometimes self-improvement is often a, a product of consumer culture trying to make you buy something or sign up for something or buy a diet product or um, buy a book even, you know, even though I'm here selling a book or, um, you know, buy gym membership and you've got six weeks to get your six pack or whatever it is. Anyway, there you go. Sorry, I was rambling on. No, it's wonderful. Um, I was really moved by Ms. Elms, her guides, kind of reminders throughout of the big importance of small things. And I think that's sort of a big part of Nora's journey is sort of understanding the impact that she has on others. I don't want to give anything away about where she ends up in the end. Um, but there's a kind of a hint of it's a wonderful life there. I was wondering about the influence. Yeah, I mean, I, I put some direct nods to it because obviously thematically it's very, it's a wonderful life. And it's a wonderful life. 
uh, I love as a film. I think it's the per the, the, the most well articulated uh, parallel life story um, that exists. And I, um, yeah, I put some direct nods in there. Like for instance, it's set in a very real English town called Bedford, but that's uh, you know a nod to Bedford Falls. Um, although the, the town of Bedford does exist in the UK. Um, what else? Uh, I think there's a George Bailey reference. Yes, we've got Ryan Bailey, who's like a Hollywood film star, bit of a himbo kind of character who, who, who's in there. And that's obviously Bailey, George Bailey. Um, there's a few other bits and bobs um, throughout. But yeah, It's a Wonderful Life, major um, inspiration for me. And what people forget, if you haven't watched It's a Wonderful Life or if you haven't watched it for a long time, is it's actually a very dark film for a lot. You know, despite the title, despite the poster, despite the ending um, that we think of, a lot of um, It's a Wonderful Life is quite heavy and it deals with a lot of heavy themes. You know, it deals in its own way with mental health. It deals with suicide. It deals with alcoholism. There's one bit where George Bailey is a... Um, he, uh, still, a, still a child, effectively, but he, he's got a job and he gets hit by the employer. And um, there's all kinds of stuff... Um, in that film and all kinds of heavy issues yet because of that i think when the optimism arrives it's so much more powerful for having taken us through um the dark place you know but it's not all rainbows and unicorns but you actually it gives you that perspective um and it it's it's more authentic for having started in a kind of bleak place and i suppose that was the essential thing i i, I took from it you know trying to write a book which simultaneously acknowledges a lot of dark stuff, but manages within that to find some authentic optimism. Yeah, I definitely felt that, certainly. Um, I wanted to ask about philosophy. Um, throughout all of Nora's lives, she's very interested in philosophy. In one life, she's a Cambridge-educated philosopher. Um, and there is a lot of references to it. I think all, almost all the little tags in my book are marking places where Nora turns to philosophy um, to sort of help her understand what she's going through. Did you study philosophy? I didn't. No, I studied um, English and history at university. Um, and you always say college, don't you? you yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, you, you still know it's a university, but it, you can say college. Okay. I, I, yeah, so I did a joint degree in English and history. And um, then I did a master's in English. But basically, yeah, I, I wish in a way I'd done philosophy. I, I, I use novels as a way to sort of crowbar in as much sort of like philosophy and my own thoughts, but also an excuse to put loads of um, quotes from favourite uh, philosophers in there. I mean, there's a lot of Thoreau in here and um, various other people too, although I'm going a bit blank, who else was in there? But um, yeah, no, it, it, and I feel like especially a book which is literally, you know, the story is literally about whether someone working out whether to live or die and someone to work out their own meaning of life. You know, it, it lent itself um, for philosophical themes. I would not say I'm a world expert on philosophy or anything else. It's just something that I like reading about to comfort me and um, to put some of those things in there. Because I think, you know, in my country and your country too, and in a lot of, well, a lot of the world, book culture, I think, is very uh, much split between 
books that are meant to be entertaining and then books that are meant to be literary and highbrow. And we, we, we have terms like beach read or airport book. And it's slightly, there's a slight snobbishness to that. And then there's books that are sort of like, we're very proud to have read and they've won all the awards and we have them on our bookshelves, Pride of Place. And um, I feel like you can have a book that is totally, hopefully, page-turning and entertaining, but can, can contain big philosophical questions about life, existence, and not do it in a heavy way, but, but just, to, just to sort of like prompt people to sort of think about their own life. And that, for me, is part of the entertainment of a book, you know, if it's making me think a bit deeper about stuff. And I'm not saying I'm like, amazing at that but it's something i aim to do with books and um yeah i have a lot of fun with putting little philosophical um strands in there and it also it's nice research to do you know because you have to research when you're writing a book and, and researching the life of through or right, researching voltaire or what whichever philosopher you're or you're looking into is 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 a fun thing it's nice homework yeah. What about uh, multi-world string theory physics? How much uh, research did you have to do there? I can barely say that. <laughs> I can tell you now, there was absolutely no chance in, the, in this universe or any other universe I was going to end up with a degree in science because we, our first exams that we have at um, 16 in the UK, they're called GCSEs. I don't know what the GCSE stands for, but they're, they're the exam that everyone takes. They used to be called O-levels, now they're called GCSE. I, I did very well in my GCSEs except in science, where I got an F in science, which was like appallingly bad. I, I was terrible at science as a kid. I thought you were either an artsy person or you were a science person. I, I, science and physics and biology, all of that gave me a rash. I, you know, I hated it. And, um, and now I write science fiction. Well, I suppose I was writing science fiction then because <laughs> I just wasn't good at science fact. But... Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a book actually by an American called um, Brian Green. Is yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, scientist, nonfiction. He wrote a book called uh, The Hidden Reality. And it's a great book. And I read this um, as an adult. And basically, in that book, I think there's about 12 central sections. And each section explores a different branch of contemporary scientific thinking. So there's a lot of quantum physics in there. And his basic argument is that if you explore any, any route into all the sort of like scientific thinking of now, um, you end up with the conclusion that parallel lives are real and the multiverse is a real thing. Whichever, it, it works in different ways, different theories of how that happens. Does it happen literally um, in the same space we are in different versions? Is it, is it a universe at the end of the universe? Whatever. Um, but every single um, theory uh, leads to that. And so that, that was just a very exciting um, concept um, to explore. And yeah, I, as an, I mean, I think it was Carl Sagan actually got me into thinking of science as this sort of poetic thing and this kind of accessible thing. My science teachers had done so much to put me off science. And then when, as an adult, I, I could read uh, science. So then I actually realized I, I, I love science and I love being inspired by science. And uh, it doesn't have to be this dry technical thing. Actually, you know, things like quantum mechanics, even though I, I, I won't profess to totally understand everything about quantum mechanics, 
they are wonderfully poetic and uncertain and ambiguous things. You know, it, it's very linked to um, fiction and, and the arts and poetry because it, it's not saying this is 100% how life happens. It's saying we literally don't know. And it's all about possibility and, and uncertainty. So, yes, I'm, I'm not a scientist in another life, but I am interested in science in a lot of lives. Well, I thought you did a good job of explaining it. It was well, well explained in the book. I felt like when I was reading, it, I was like, oh, I understand this. And then, well, yeah. I, think, I think it helps in that sense that I'm not a scientist because I need to, I, because I, I, I've got quite a, um, a simple brain sometimes when it comes to science. I, unless, if I can understand it, I think most people can understand it. So I have to get to a point where I, I've worked at, read so much about it that I actually understand it and then I write it in my way which isn't a highbrow scientific way Coming up we'll find out about more things that influenced Matt Haig to write including one important person's essence that he used in one of his characters The one real life person I had in mind when I was writing Mrs. Elm I had an English teacher called Mrs. Kurzweil who, who was very inspiring when I was a teenager and she was the first teacher, certainly, who, who made me realize that books weren't this thing that exists solely to do me good. You know, they're not this sort of worthwhile, whole grain kind of thing, which was like eating, you know, like a really boring cereal that's just there to do you good. Books are also as entertaining, as thrilling, as dangerous, as stimulating as any other entertainment form. Plus, we'll hear about some of his coming work on the page and on the big screen when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Well, I want to talk about libraries. When I started reading um, reading it, I immediately thought of the Borges quote, the, I think paradise will be a sort of library, his quote. Um, I hope I have that right. Um, did you have a favorite library in mind or do you have a comfort place library like Nora's? That's uh, interesting. I, I, that Borges quote, by the way, um, that was going to be the starting quote. I didn't have the Sylvia Plath quote at the beginning. I had the Borges quote. And then at the end, I thought, you know, let's focus on the emotional side of this book rather than the library side of this book. But I nearly went with that Borges quote. So that, that quote single-handedly was a massive inspiration. And that idea of um, library as, as this, a library as this sort of infinite paradise. Um, in terms of actual libraries, I didn't visualize any specific library when I was writing this. I mean, in my own life, the library that has possibly meant most to me was the library in my small town where I grew up. I grew up in a uh, place called Newark, which is very different to the Newark in New Jersey or any of the Newarks in America. It's a very um, small town of about 30,000 people. And it had nothing really culturally. It had, uh, you know, it, it didn't even have a bookshop. It had no cinema. There was nothing going on in terms of arts. But it did have a brand new library right in the town centre. And it was like this big greenhouse because it was all like a glass conservatory kind of look. And it was a very light place. And it was a very nice place to sort of hang out. And like 
my parents both worked quite late. So I would, I would come home from school and I would go to the library and do my homework at the library. Um, I would discover Stephen King novels at the library. I would, I would just sort of, it was just a place to be and exist. And I think most libraries have that feeling that they are very accepting places. And, you know, even, even if you're not a book lover, I think you feel that. And often the debate here, because I know in America, you know, British people often think that we're, we're much better at the public service and civil service than in America. And we value that more and we, we pay our taxes more for it. But the thing in America that surprised me is that you really value your libraries over yes. in America. Libraries are a big essential backbone and part of um, cultural life, but also civil life, and they're, they're seen and valued for what they are. Whereas in the UK, that libraries have been seriously undervalued, um, and financially too. And, you know, the Conservative government we've had in for over a decade has, has made massive cuts to library funding. There's been library closures in the last places you need there to be library closures in sort of poor communities and um, deprived areas, areas with high child illiteracy rates and stuff like that. So it's a very sad thing. And I think the true value of libraries, obviously they're still great as houses for books. They're still great as places where librarians can guide you in a, a much more human way than a search engine towards the right book. But I think for me, it's about the space of being in a library as well is massively important. It's one of the few um, spaces left that we have in our towns and cities that values us not as consumers, but values us as human beings and doesn't value our wallets more than it values us. So they're like sort of secular churches, aren't they? And, and it's... it's um, Great. And I feel like that's missing from the debate when people have debates about libraries and the internet age and all of this. And it's like, it's not just about access. It's not just about access to what is on the shelves. It's about the actual uh, presence of a library in a town or a community and what that means to people. Mm -hmm. So yes, libraries are very important to me. Newark-on-Trent Library in Nottinghamshire, England was possibly the, the first library that was important to me, but it's nothing like the Midnight Library in terms of what the Midnight Library um, looks like. Right, right. Um, yeah, I certainly agree with all of that. I mean, it really is the last community space where you're not expected to pay or anything when you're there. It's just free services. Yeah, yeah. Our libraries, I mean, we do so much more than just books. We've got computer labs and, um, you know, help with job searches. And right now during COVID, we're doing, you know, food pickup for people that need some help wow. with grocery bills. And we've got hotspots for kids that are in virtual school. And I could go on and on. But yeah, thank you for all those things you said about libraries. That That's was amazing. Great. You're doing food deliveries. Doing <laughs> yeah, we're doing food, food pickups, like pickup lines. Yeah. People can come pick up extra groceries. We've got diaper pickups, all kinds wow. of things going on. COVID testing in our parking lots. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I think it's essentially because there's something sort of philanthropic about a library, you know, but it's, it's there to serve the community rather than to just take and drain. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so Nora has the librarian, Mrs. Elm, who kind of serves as her guide in this limbo state. Um, and there's another character she encounters who is also going through it. Um, and his home base is a video rental store, and he has an uncle that guides him. This might be kind of a personal question, but who would you imagine as your guide if you were in 
That's a good question. And I've done lots of events in the UK about this book and I haven't been asked that question. And it's so nice to be asked a totally <laughs> new question. Although at the same time, I'm now struggling to think who that would be. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose the one real life person I had in mind when I was writing Mrs. Elm, and it's not her, but there's an element or an inspiration of her. I had an English teacher um, called Mrs. Kurzweil, who, who was very inspiring when I was a teenager. And she was the first teacher, certainly, who, who made me realize that books weren't this thing that exists solely to do me good. You know, they're not this sort of worthwhile whole grain kind of um thing which was like eating you know like a really boring cereal that's just there to do you good it's uh, it's also books are also um as entertaining as thrilling as dangerous or stimulating as any other entertainment form uh, as video games as 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 movies or, or whatever it is and she was the one who had a almost a sort of like um irreverent take to the syllabus and to school and, and she was just a great teacher and she was the first person who encouraged me to do creative writing as well i'm the first person that i dared to show her my own stories i used to write uh, uh, you know lots of proper hardcore science fiction about space and star wars fan fiction and all kinds of stuff and i i showed her some and she she, she um liked it and yeah said i should keep doing it so um, I actually wrote on Twitter uh, a month ago when it got to number one in the UK. I wrote a sort of like, oh, this is for you, Mrs. Kurzweil. Thank you, thank you for, for that. So she would probably be the obvious, obvious one. But, I, you know, there's elements of other people. You know, my grandmother who, who, who um, died when I was quite young, she, she was very much full of sort of wisdom and little aphorisms and sayings and cliches that she used to sort of like... Um, put out there and she used to take me on walks in the woods and knew all the terms for all the nature and stuff so there's a little bit of her yeah but um yeah one of those yeah well I wanted to ask about the book's dedication too so it's the dedication reads to all the health workers and the care workers thank you um I'm assuming the book was well written before COVID sort of launched into our lives did you add this dedication later no, I, um, well, the dedication was the last thing I did. So by the time I was doing the dedication, COVID was here. Actually, in the very last edit of the book, it was like late February, early March. And in Europe, um, things were already kicking off by then. And I thought, oh, should I, should I make a reference to it? Should I, you know, within the story itself? And I thought, no, because, I, you know, it, it would, I don't know, it just wouldn't have felt, it wouldn't have felt right. I don't know, I don't know why, but I, you know, I wrote this book in uh, 2019 and the world was very, you know, it was still in a bad place in 2019, but it was very much within that world and it just felt um, wrong to do that. And I, um, so, but the dedication was written after um, the COVID news, but also, We'd had uh, um, two close family friends who passed away, not of COVID-related things, um, recently. And um, they'd been very well looked after through their terminal conditions. And so my heart was very much feeling um, 
you know, like it, it needed to uh, acknowledge that in some way. And I thought it would be nice um, to dedicate it. Um, yeah. But so the dedication was written very much in that, in the midst of, uh, of, of that, but I would keep that same dedication now, obviously. Uh, yeah. Um, so just a few more questions. I think we're starting to run low on time, but I wanted to ask a couple questions around the movie adaptations. So I know it was just announced that Midnight Library has been optioned for a film. Yes. And I remember when How to Stop Time came out in the US, the big news here was that it had been optioned by Benedict Cumberbatch long before it was published. Um, so can you tell us anything about those projects? Right. Well, okay. Um, in terms of the how to stop time, that is still being optioned by um, Benedict Cumberbatch. They recently, very recently, renewed the option on that. The problem with the delay on that has been um, the script. The script was written, uh, it's had two scripts so far by two different writers. Um, and then the second writer was going in the right direction, but then became ill. And then... Um, abandon it for his own sort of personal reasons and now the thinking is um not for it to be a film but for it to be a tv series and benedict oh. is still wanting it to be a tv series because he thinks it's got potential to go beyond the book and to sort of like you know go through different eras in time so you know it's still in a very distant phase but they, they they're getting writers and it's still as happening as it ever was happening, if you know what I mean. But that doesn't mean it's definitely going to be happening because I've had um, every single one of my adult fiction books optioned for film and obviously some, well, all haven't happened and some have been sort of dropped along the way. But a film definitely is happening of one of my children's books because I also write children's books. There's a book um, I wrote called A Boy Called Christmas, which wasn't particularly widely read in America, um, but it is going to be a film that is uh, seen on Netflix in America because it's uh, coming out, uh, that's coming out next year. It's got a great cast, Kristen Wiig, Maggie Smith, um, Jim Broadbent, various other um, largely British cast um and that's that looks brilliant because i've seen it and, and they luckily had finished filming it before um lockdowns and all the sort of new working conditions happened so it's still just about in post-production that will be out at christmas 2021 um a year from this month i think it'll, it'll start to be in cinemas in europe and so that's exciting that is definitely happening the midnight library it's being produced by the same people who have produced the children's book, A Boy Called Christmas. And I went with them primarily, A, because I know they're good and I've had experience with them, and because I feel like they're the people most likely to make it happen. And um, one thing you learn as, as time goes on is, is sometimes you just want to get it done, you know, because there will be people who try and stop it because it's not. Uh, and I, I really want Midnight Library to, to happen as a film, but it's incredibly early days. So we don't know who's writing it or who's directing it or who'll be in it, obviously. But um, I know the people very well and I'm going, I'm going to have a producer credit with it. So I've got a certain amount of um, control over that one. So yeah, fingers crossed for that. But yeah, I expect A Boy Called Christmas um, next year. Yeah. 
My kids are excited for a boy called Christmas. I've been following the news on that. Getting Maggie Smith had to felt like just of such a yeah. treasure. And she's really good in it. I mean, she's kind of like the narrator character. So, so she's actually reading the story all the way through. And yeah, no, it's, it, it's very, it's a very surreal thing. And I actually was sent, they filmed it in Prague and they actually built an elf village um, you know, so there is a lot of CGI in there, but the actual elf architecture and builders, they actually built that. And um, it was quite weird to sort of walk through a world that you'd created or imagined in your head and to see it actually visualised far better than you were able to visualise it. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a very nice moment. And my children are in it. My children oh, are in really? it. One scene, yeah, total nepotism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they are in, they are, um, well, they asked me if I wanted to be in it. I think the world does not need to see a middle-aged elf with a shaven head. I don't, think, I don't think we need that in our lives. But my children are, yeah, they're, they're elf school children. In, um, the, the, there's a chase scene which goes through an elf classroom. And they, yeah, my son gets a, a line and my daughter gets to scream. And yes, <laughs> so, so they're... I was, I was, I was a good dad for, uh, you know, I, I was, that was a good, good month. Of, of yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. I'm sure they'll, they'll remember that forever. <laughs> well, this was, this was a beautiful conversation. Thank you so very, very much for doing this with us. Thank you, Carrie, for very thoughtful questions. And I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. This is wonderful. That's Matt Haig on getting credit as a good dad for a short time after getting his kids on screen. Finally, we'll hear from Matt one more time as he reads a bit from his book, The Midnight Library, in his own words. Nora had always had a problem accepting herself. From as far back as she could remember, she'd had the sense that she wasn't enough. Her parents, who both had their own insecurities, had encouraged that idea. She imagined now what it would be like to accept herself completely every mistake she had ever made, every mark on her body, every dream she hadn't reached or pain she had felt, every lust or longing she had suppressed. She imagined accepting it all the way she accepted nature, the way she accepted a glacier or a puffin or the breach of a whale. She imagined seeing herself as just another brilliant freak of nature, just another sentient animal trying their best. And in doing so, she imagined what it was like to be free. That's our guest, Matt Haig. We spoke with him via Zoom in October of 2020 about his newest book, The Midnight Library, by publisher Viking Books. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host of the video version of this program was Carrie Robb. The video producer was Christina Chastain. Editor was Carrie Marks. The supervising producer, Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. The HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking with Authors Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to The Novel Neighbor and the St. Louis County Library. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media.
You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.